everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers sitting around drinking tasty beverages and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your writers today are Madeline Robbins, Cliff Winnig, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 114, A Block Party. I'm kind of excited about this in a real weird, dark sort of way, because when I'm saying a block party, I don't mean that we're all getting together and eating pizza and and throwing streamers at each other, although I'm open to that, just so you guys know. This is where we say, I've hit a point where I am blocked in part of my story. And it can be a writer's block or a how do I begin this or how do I middle this or how do I end it? And I thought it might be useful to anybody out there listening who also has writer's blocks to maybe you'll hear something and hear how we work through it as members of my writing group. You guys are members of Flying Cars with me, hosted by the fantastic Catherine Kerr. And Madeline, you're working on something today. And I think Cliff was saying that you've just had some challenges this year and we're going to talk them out. Does that sound about right? Sounds right to me. Yep. Blocks. Okay. I find openers incredibly hard. I don't remember who it was out there that said, once I get the first line, everything flows. I think it was Jim Butcher. I'm not sure. Whoever it was, they're a rat bastard and they can burn in hell. (laughs) I'm just saying that because beginnings are hard. So I wrote a first novel, which I'm now going back and revising and playing and doing all of my edits on. But meanwhile, I've started the second one. My problem is I am very good at where I want the second, third, and the third third to be. I know where it's going to have in the middle, and I know what it's in the end, but what I have is the opening, and I can't figure out exactly where to open it. So what do you guys think? Should I just give a little synopsis of what went before and tell you what things I want to have happen in the first third of the book, or what will work for you guys to give me some advice? Whatever you like. I guess a little bit of what we're walking into and then basically you're talking about connective tissue. Uh, What I think of as putting a ladder from one chair to the next chair so you can crawl across it. Exactly. Well, Barnabas is, I've decided he is the reluctant exorcist. He is trained as an exorcist of how to cast out demons and other things out of people, how to do banishments, how to clean up the world. The year is 1901. The first series, he went from Oxford to London up to a small town called Three Oaks on Weir. And where he was in ended up, he was married to a ghost. He ended up befriending a member of the She. He met various other spirits and they defeated an otherworldly creature from popping through. The price of defeating that otherworldly creature from propping through was he lost his wife, whom he had just realized he may have accidentally fallen in love. And there is nothing left for him there in that small town. But the bishop has called him back and said, your talents are still needed, but not here. Would you like to come back and figure out what's going on? So at the end of the book one, he's moaning, but he's deciding to go off. The opening of the book because there's going to be a great deal to do with trains and he's going to end up in America, I wanted to have him start on a train coming back to London on the Newcastle-London line and say, or whatever, I will look it up, I swear. But I need him to get on a train. I need him to discover that all of the children have been shipped out 
of a ship that was heading for Toronto, which was a common practice of rounding up poor kids and shipping them off. There's a book called The Lost Innocence that talks about a lot of the kids that arrived in Toronto. And we need to find out that there's no more of these bad, possessed people left in London and all, that like rats avoiding a sinking ship, they have all left. So he needs to visit the docks. Should I have much of a ship's journey in there? I don't know, because the ship, I mean, the, the water travel isn't much of it, but how much do I start? And where do I start this journey? Should it be on the train? Should it be on the ship? Should all of these be, what with one thing and another, our hero arrives in Toronto? I'm stuck. Help me out. Um, well, I, I guess to some extent, all of these traveling bits can be useful places for rehashing what happened before. But how much of that do you want to have front-loaded? Right. How much of it do you want, you know, as you know, Bob, when we left England. Um, <laughs> that thing I hate the most. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, as does any right-minded person. Hmm. I find the potential for the discomfort of one of your travelers, if traveling by rail, if traveling over water, you know, being out of his element to be the biggest reason I can think of for making us go along on the travel. Otherwise, you know, traveling scenes have to accomplish something other than just like getting from point A to point B, in my opinion. Agreed. At the opening, the train, we get, first of all, I just want to establish a train. And secondly, I want to establish the saddest man in all of England, and that the puck is a fae, and that fae's are very strange, and that we don't know all about them. I need to have the fae reaction of meeting the Catholic priest that taught him how to do exorcisms in London. Presumably in there, we need to find out about all of these bad, evil spirits that have vamoose, that have left. I haven't decided how that is going to get figured out yet. Of the, well, there's none left in all of England. Who would be able to know that for sure? What do you think? If there was suddenly you went from having lots of possessed people, you know, some in Bethlehem, you know, people think they're crazy, and suddenly everybody gets well or drops dead all at once, something truly remarkable. How would you find that out? What do you think, Cliff? Well, um, so book two beginnings are their own thing, right? And I've, unlike Madeline, I have never written a book two in anything. So uh, you have to balance the new readers with the old readers. So, um, but in general beginnings, I would say that you should start where there's something interesting happening. And it can be, you can have different approaches, right? You can do the James Bond beginning, where it starts with the end of some previous adventure, which we're never going to get to see the movie of, right? <laughs> right. Um, but, it, but it shows your protagonist doing what your protagonist does. So maybe if you, if you want to do that, you would start with an exorcism. Ooh. Right. You know, something yeah. could go terribly strange on the train. Yeah, and it could just be, it could be going very badly, right, at the beginning. And I'm thinking like, now Kit always uh, likes to talk, likes, likes, she, she likes to talk about uh, a cinematic opening where you like start far and you kind of slowly zoom in, especially in a novel length work. Um, so... I'm thinking like the movie version of the two towers, which started with this beautiful, 
serene fly over the, the misty mountains in the exterior and you're, it's beautiful and there's music. And then you start to hear the sounds of the stuff happening in Casa Doom and screams and running. And then boom, you're in there and Gandalf is facing the Balrog and, you know, the bridge gets destroyed and he says, fly you fools. And then they go into the big fight scene. Right. right? So even if you, if for some, some reason you had never seen the fellowship of the ring, you kind of know what's happening, right? Uh, you've been plunged into it and it's just all going south, right? And so you could have Barnabas, you know, he thinks he's dealt with, he's done, right? He thinks he's done. There are no more exorcisms that need to happen. He is, he is done with his journey. He has finished it. He is not expecting a, a sequel. He wants to retire quietly outside of a novel where no author can make mess with him and make him terrible <laughs> things happen around him. And then suddenly he finds on the train, on the steamship. Snakes on the train. <laughs> yes. Demons on a train. I know that this, we're allowed to swear on this podcast, but I, I have kids in the house. I have some friends listening in Ukrainian and I'm going to get Pasha to teach me how to swear in Ukrainian. Just Ukrainian. For- uh, I will totally you know, listen to every podcast episode where you swear in Ukrainian. Just <gasps> swear in Ukrainian. I'll see if I can talk them into joining us. Then you'll, then you don't, he's not like telling you, he's not like staring out the window in his cabin and the steamship musing about his dead wife. And, you know, he's, he's fighting a demon and he's thinking, this is the thing, this is the crap that killed my wife. You know, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> also, um, but he feels compelled because somebody is in trouble and he can't not help someone in trouble, which tells you something about Barnabas. Exactly. Say that again, Mads. Well, he's also probably on the train in given the way that British trains work, where you're in uh, compartments rather than an open car in most cases, the next compartment, there's an unholy ruckus term used advisedly. Literally. And he knows Oh, hell, exactly what it is. And he's the only one who's going to because nobody else is an exorcist. And so he's he's not just, we get to see him in action. We also can, you, this is an opportunity for you to show how he feels about being in action. Yes. After the the antics in the last book, is he hoping to retire away from your machinations and live a quiet life and mourn his dead but spectral wife? You should have never let me take an interest in him. That's the problem. It always is. Okay, um, so there's yeah. there's an there's an opening. Now, an absence. I need, to, if you had to figure out that suddenly there were none of the bad gang in London, where would you find, what, how much work should I do for him to define this? Is this something I can have somebody else help him out with? or Does Father Mike know? Yeah, he's meeting with the priest, right? So the priest can just lay the cards on the table and say, well, we've been tracking all this activity, but all of a sudden it vanished. We don't think they went down below. We think they went somewhere else. Right. I like that. That makes that short and sweet. Plus, then I can have my she meets a priest and they come to an uneasy accord. And then my last question is, what with one thing and another? I feel it's a waste of the Atlantic Ocean not to have something terrible happen there. Well, you could have a cracking good time. I understand that you are afraid of wasting a good ocean. 
And the only good ocean is an ocean full of kraken, of course. But if you just if you just want something to happen because you're on the water, I'm not sure that there's any point to it, okay. unless it has some bearing on what's going to happen later. Um, mm -hmm. Not just a place for him to demonstrate his masterful she fighting uh, chops, but at this point, you should have some sort of tie-in to what happens later. I like that it ties the opening to the previous novel and then the docks to where we're going and the I mean, ship to where we're going. Yeah. Everything after that initial scene should be the plot of this. You can't have two scenes that don't relate to the plot of this book. After after the first mini opening thing, everything is related to the new plot. Yeah, and I like it. And I don't really need anything to happen on that side. So maybe I'll save that then. Cool. Well, that's basically my first four chapters. So if I work on that, then that gets me unstuck. Thank you, guys. Well, <laughs> well that was easy. What do you got going on, Matt? <laughs> well, aside from the uh, the last year and a half of just sort of frantically doing almost anything other than write. Other than that, um, Mrs. Lincoln, did you enjoy the play? Yeah, loved him, hated her. I have a, as you have seen, I have maybe... 30,000 words in a contemporary fantasy set in San Francisco. And broadly, my main character is a reluctant heir in that, that sort of way of, you know, Arthur discovers that he's actually the king of England or something. And she finds herself being not just part of a, a supernatural community, but expected to know that she's part of this supernatural community and expected to be sort of the governor of the region at the same time that there are all sorts of internecine battles going on between different factions in this uh, supernatural community. She thinks she's human. She's always thought she was human. So first of all, she's dealing with kind of the shock of finding, well, no, actually you're not, never mind that. And you are Rightwise, the local queen of this whole thing. It's not exactly a new plot. I'm trying to figure out, having established how she feels about this and why, how she could have gotten to this point without knowing these things and what the politics that she finds herself in the middle of. I have no idea whether she's going to take up the crown. There are compelling reasons why she should. There are probably also compelling reasons why she shouldn't. And so I have found myself just sort of grinding to a halt because I feel like in most cases, what I have when I'm writing a book is what I think of as a map. And even if I don't have the individual towns and roads depicted on the map. I know the topography. I know we're going from Guggle to Zatch and whatever the, the route is in Guggle and the route is in Zatch. This one, I'm going to Guggle, but I'm not exactly sure whether I'm going to Zatch or Zatch. And I feel like I need to know that, but I have not been able to figure out what I know. Well, I think either way, they, the route goes through Vimvum. We, well. we do definitely need some vim boom. See, this is, I think this is the one that I read. You wrote my favorite opening line of almost all time. Yes, that is that one. Oh. 
Yes, both of us want you to finish it. So we are <laughs> I'd like to finish it. I'm, I'm on board with this. So, I mean, it's easy enough to figure out why she wouldn't know that she wasn't human just because there's going away, there's having problems with family, there's if she was fighting, you can get sent off to live with aunts. I mean, maybe I'm weird, but I have a family that had lots of things that we just didn't really, I never knew my grandfather had a twin brother until years after he was dead. I didn't know... I had an uncle, a great uncle, that died in jail for murder one. I didn't, wow. you know, these are the things. There's a lot of shit that families don't talk about. And so oh. she could have been whisked away, you know, for a long periods of time about it without anything other than, well, we know somebody wants so-and-so dead. If you've got all these mechanisms going up, maybe they just like, we want to kind of protect her from all of this. So there's... There's nothing like, you know, avuncular protectionism to really be annoying. And yet the the protectionism is really to some extent the women in this culture have all the supernatural power. The men have what for better or worse might be called the gift of gab hmm. uh, or the the gift of charm. They are the sociologists, they are the politicians, the spy masters occasionally. And her father, because she was, her mother died very young, took over her power, quote unquote, holding it as a regency and never mentioned it to her because he was holding it for basically himself. And so she, she has been kept deliberately unaware of what her heritage is. And as it turns out, very dangerously unaware because there are people out there who think she knows what's going on and would like to kill her so that they can get her out of the way and yada, da, da. Well, what was her father trying to do? And have you decided if he was a good guy or a bad guy? He's a mixed guy. Um, her father was so, something of a monstrous egoist. And he is a progressive in that he believes that this artificial division between the genders is old-fashioned and artificial and that men should be entitled to be the leaders of things. And I'm just holding on to my daughter's power until she's old enough to, oh, look over there, she's going to college. Well, I'll just hold on to it for an, oh, grad school. Oh, okay. And his three sis four sisters who live with them have colluded with him to keep her innocent. I recall one of the three sisters was actually pretty sympathetic to Ivy, right? Mm-hmm. So here's my thinking, and this thinking is evolving because it occurred to me listening to you describe the plot. Even though I've already read it, it's been a while. It occurs to me that her father, being the egotist he is, would think that his daughter is perfectly capable of picking up whatever she needs to know once he's gone, eventually, someday, far in the future, right? But I think that through her childhood, there would be lessons from him and the aunts, especially the one aunt who wants to her to succeed, that she doesn't know her lessons until her heritage is revealed to her. And that she'll be able to draw on memories. Oh, oh, when I thought we were going to the zoo and this happened, that was really, you know, aunt so-and-so teaching me this, right? So that she has more because I think it, I think your character is just so hosed at the beginning that she really needs more things than she is a she has she needs more tools than she is aware she possesses. Well, part of what I want to play with is 
what advantage being a human has given her. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Because, you know. Yeah, because she's been in the human world for. She's been in the human world if she has never suspected there was anything else. Sure. What can a human do that a woman of power in her family cannot? Negotiate. Oh, she can be like a man. (laughs) Well, to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, She has the gift of gab. Yeah, because the men, if, as I recall, it was a little bit supernatural, like they had the Bene Gesserit voice. Kind of. Yeah, kind of. This whole world thing uh, started as a collaboration with a friend of mine. And the idea was that the this supernatural community grew up in what we refer to as the New World in South America and slowly began to move eastward to Europe, but they didn't want the Europeans to know that there were uh, Fey in them, our hills in mm. South America. Uh, and they are the basis for the man who came out of the West in folklore. So what was her major and where did she go to school? She's a musicologist. Oh, God. Oh. What a Which, useless degree. No. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, she's... Come on, I have one. <laughs> I have one too. It's, it's, it's the only way to fly. Right. Um, she's a musicologist. She's in a master's program at the University of, I think, Iowa, if I remember correctly. And what's her focus? I think music, music history. Oh my God, I just had a sudden fun moment of thought. Oh, I don't know if it was done too much for War of the Oaks, but so you have a musicologist. So you have somebody that can make music of some kind, give her give her a popular instrument where she can self-accompany. But what if she could combine her magic with the gift of gab and thus become, be like the instant rock star and make people dance for her and make people mm. do things so that she has that mortality, the gift of the men and the gift of the women all at once. An alternative, because this is something I know a lot about and could talk to you about offline, um, if she were studying ethnomusicology, like when I was an ethnomusicologist grad student, I took a whole semester course on music and ritual and learned a lot about how musical traditions Ooh. are. Um, there's a wonderful book. It's out of print, but I've got a copy somewhere called, um, um, I think it's just called Music and Ritual. And it's about trance and how music is used in trance, including in South America. My professor was from Brazil and he was a world leading expert in Candomblé. There's, if, if they're from the South, right, they probably have some knowledge or connection to the Orichas and that, you know, could be an element you could bring in. Yeah, I, I kind of like that. I like some combination of having music being what ties together the powers of the women and the Call it the unholy uh, uh, charisma of the men. Yeah, because she's basically a bard. Yeah. (laughs) Kick-ass bard there. Yeah. Right. Like The thing is, as with her own background, she has never been a musician per se. She has been somebody who studies. Which is one advantage, um, actually, to ethnomusicologists because they're all musicians. Mm -hmm. They, They wind up studying, when they study a musical tradition, they wind up learning it. Yeah, you don't have a choice. You get an ethnomusicology yeah. degree, you're required to do a, at least in the college I went to, you were required to do a senior recital. So, Oh, we were a, not. Um, oh. I was a music major. We didn't have to do any. I, was, I did electronic music and I did ethnomusicology oh. and composition. There were people who did composition. There were, I wasn't a musicology. Then when I was a grad student, yeah, we had to 
you had to join some kind of musical ensemble. That was a requirement. And I, every time I took a course studying, like I did a whole course studying, I think it was actually, it was for field methods course. I studied a capoeira and learned how to play the bar and bow and the other, the agogo and the other, all the instruments and sing the traditional music that goes to, with capoeira as well as do the martial art. So um, you, you really, you're, you're doing anthropology. So you immerse, right? And you mm-hmm. study the culture in that in that way. You don't show up with your pith helmet and your notepad. And- Damn! There goes my costuming. I know. No, no. You're sitting. You're you're sitting down. You're having a couple shrooms. You're hitting the drum. You're you're starting with the melodic instrument. And you're you're gone for hours. It's great fun. Oh yeah. I, I guess in the end, I'm not sure whether she decides to take up this whatever has been thrust upon her or decides to walk away. Well, that's my point about um, the path goes through this middle town, no matter where. Mm-hmm. She doesn't make that decision till the end. Yeah. And here's a question. What if she decided that it needed to change? What if she could create a way that they could each have both? What if music was the way through of saying, the music and the magic and the welding it together that there's no reason that you couldn't all be complete people and stop hating each other and picking on it. But all of you could have all of the gifts. Because because in addition to the male female thing, there's also interfamilial politics and those who feel that they are above mere humanity and should be their masters. And those who think that humans are kind of interesting and cool. And why don't we find out more about them? and those who just want to, you know, get along and live. You know, I'm always thinking of what I call the third ending, right? Like there's the happy ending that the character wants, and then there's the sad ending that the the antagonist, if there is one, wants. And then there's whatever the real ending always was, right? And maybe, I mean, this is a secret society, right? What's the Mm -hmm. worst thing that could happen to a secret society? Being outed. So maybe the plot events end with the secret society being exposed to the mundanes. Hmm. That's a possibility, which could then, you know, put her in a sort of a weird third position. Yep. The spokesperson for the society with the humans. There's, there's a lot of things that say, because it is secret, therefore it has more power it, by simply removing the secrecy does take a fair bit of the power away. You're like me. You just, you write to discover what the ending was. So you just need to write more. You don't need the ending. You need the middle, <laughs> right? And um, this is a point where I should recommend for our listeners, a the only book I recommend on, there's wonderful books on writing. Ursula Le Guin wrote some, Stephen King wrote one. But the, the, the book that I would recommend to all writers is Beginnings, Middles and Ends by Nancy Kress. It has two advantages. One, it's short, lets you get back to writing. Three, it's a collection of essays essentially made into a book and it's divided into three sections. Things that help you fix beginnings, things that help you fix middles, and things that help you fix endings. And it's got exercises and uh, discussions about, you know, how to approach those sections of a work in different ways because they all have different things. And it's got like how to deal with, oh, you're blocked at the beginning. Well, here's a bunch of things you can do for that. You're blocked at the middle. Here's a bunch of things you can do with that. Same with ending. And so uh, uh, that's that's got some, I learned a lot from that book. It's got some wonderful stuff about the fact that, because, you know, we're calling this block party, but 
Um, Genie's blocked was blocked at the beginning. Madeline is blocked at sort of eh, the middle. I'd say it's the middle. You're not. It really sounds like it sounds like a middle block. Yeah. Yeah. Neither of you is blocked at the end. So, <laughs> um, but that can happen too. I've known lots of writers. Like you know, I I found this when I was writing the book that I completed recently. Um, I discovered there was a part of the book about three quarters of the way through where I hated the book. It was the worst thing in the world. It was total garbage. Uh, I wanted, I had all these other great ideas for projects that I couldn't work on because of this stupid book, which is crap anyway, and no one's going to want to read it. And, and then I, you know, I talked to some people and found out, oh yeah, that's, that's typical for that stage. Uh, I was told once by uh, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, I was complaining about this, that basically at the beginning, anything could happen. And about a halfway through, you have to start narrowing down the possibilities and limiting what can happen and that it can be very painful. Uh, That's smart. Jeez. Yeah. Well, that, that emotional arc, I I taught Richard Cadry, who was one of my clarion instructors and who has periodically sort of mentored me here and there. And Sandman Uh, Slim's coming out. Woo. Yes. Number 12 of 12. (laughs) But uh, anyway, Richard told me that he had the same thing with books, right. And that this was just something you power through and, that's part of the ending. That blocks a lot of endings, I think. You know, it's that emotional uh, stage that you go through in a, in a book. And if you're writing a short, when I'm writing a short story, I go through it in a short story, but a thousand words later, it's over. So it's kind of, you know, whatever. So it's your block there, Cliff. Ah, so uh, what I wanted to, thank you for that very subtle segue, which I have now pointed to and made less subtle by doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, my, I have three of the cutest blocks in the world. They are my children. Uh, for the Ever since, you know, the middle of March, 2020, it's now, as we record this, the middle of August, 2021. First, they were home and I was their teacher because I was literally having to homeschool them. The, the school year just stopped. And now I have, you know, I'm at, I'm at home at this stage in my life and I, uh, they're, they were doing distance learning. So I wasn't having to teach them, but they were here and they were in different grades in the uh, um, recess periods during which they were wanting to interact with me, the only human generally at home at that time of day. They were staggered. They weren't synchronized. So I was pretty much, it was not, it was very hard to write, right? Because I did, I had finished the book and was already, you know, shopping it around, but I wasn't able to write another book because the sustained concentration required to do that just was not working with three kids in the house. And I was unable to go to a coffee shop and write because, hey, I'm a writer drinking coffee most of the time. I like to write in coffee shops and drink coffee. That's just normal. It is just yeah. normal, right? It's, just, it's normal. But they were all closed, right? And now, yeah, they're open, but Delta variant and faith, faith in fellow. Well, your wife is an ER doctor. Your wife is an ER doctor. So a like the honey who, who in the world would trust like anybody if you're married to a doctor? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I could, even if I weren't married to her, I still would be yeah. very cautious. Right. So you're having problems with a combination of child hurting time management, soul crushing ennui frustrated rage for faceless millions of humanity that just won't get this stupid shot. What else you got? And under caffeinated. I mean, I have, I brew my own at home, but it's not necessarily enough. Um, so 
you know, I can't just go get another cup when I need one. If I've, if I've brewed it, it's once it's done, it's done. Uh, <laughs> and then it's just like, do I want to clean the coffee maker again? What are you doing when you have, you know, you wake up and you had a cool dream? Are you writing it down? Oh yeah. Um, okay. The notes app on my iPhone is full of fragments and ideas. Often ideas of the work in progress. Um, so despite all this, um, I, you know, I just finished the first draft on, well, it's technically a novelette. It's a little over 7,500 words. I did it during this, this, this situation. Now, next week, the kids go, all three of them to in-person school. And unless there is a, you know, a COVID outbreak and they all have to switch to distance learning, which is unfortunately a distinct possibility, you know, then I am going to have time during the week again, um, which will be nice. But uh, so mostly I've been working on short fiction during this period, and mostly I have been not writing. Uh, when I was teaching full time for the, you know, from March through June of last year, all my creative energy was going into teaching and I did zero writing and I was okay with that because, you know, I was just stepping up for my kids, right? And it was just, that's the priority. Kids come first. But then when school ended and I wasn't having to spend my non- school hours, plan, lesson planning, and things like that, I still was just like, okay, the kids are summer break, kids are all <laughs> right, and it's just, you know, I guess re recording this at the end of, towards the end of 2021, you know, 16, 17 months into this pandemic, um, maybe the situation that I'm describing is ending as the school year, as kids go back to school, uh, but you still have to juggle responsibilities when you're a parent. Now, uh, Madeline uh, has parented two wonderful children to adulthood. So maybe she has some thoughts about being a writer with kids at home. I fortunately did not have a pandemic to deal with. The other thing is that I had books hanging out around the house that had my name on them. So that fairly early on, my daughters knew that this was one of the things that mama did. So if mama said, I'm going into my room to write for an hour, it didn't actually mean that they didn't bother me, but there was a little more respect when I said, you know, come back in five minutes, they might come back in two and a half. When my older daughter was about three, I realized I could not be like not in the house. I was working full time. And when I was not working, I was with the kid uh, my husband, who is a saint and a swell guy, said, well, confirm. one night a week, go someplace else and write. And so one night a week, I would spend three or four hours at, at the time, the Barnes and Noble on Broadway and 70th Street in Manhattan. And I began to write stuff. And during the periods when I was not working at an office someplace when I wasn't working in publishing or comic books or more poor publishing or museums or whatever, I would work at either the library or coffee shops. That, of course, has been paid to in the last year and a half. And like you, I am feeling the lack of someplace that is not my space to work in. Because even after the kids were in school and old enough to go off and do older kid things uh, and leave me alone, I found that being in my own space was 
it was hard for me to focus because, you know, if I was having trouble with something, well, oh, gee, look, the floor needs polishing. Anybody who knows me knows that polishing floors is not the first or even the 17th thing I think of. And so being in another place was very clarifying for me. I realize right now that's really difficult. In addition to writing in coffee shops in the before time, I there's a, a local branch of my library, like two blocks from my house, that has a quiet room, um, several tables and power for laptops. And mostly it is inhabited, when it is inhabited, by students who are working on papers or whatever, but they're all very quiet. You're not allowed to talk. There's just the sound of typing. And despite the lack of coffee, it is still a congenial room with a lot of sunshine and you can close the door to the room to the rest of the library. Of course, now the idea of being in a small sealed room with a half dozen other people is terrifying. Uh, But the novel got written partly in that room and partly at Barnes and Noble and Stevens Creek and partly in various coffee houses. And I've been pondering this as you've been talking. I have an idea. Are you ready? I am ready. This is something that neither children nor adults can really argue with. And I am borrowing a bit from the Pomodoro and GTD. I think you need to have 30 minutes, but I don't think you need them all at once. I think you need to work with your kids to help you find a cute little tomato timer that times for 10 minutes and say for 10 minutes, I am going to transcribe things from my phone onto my computer. And I'm going to do that three times a day. Let the kids decide when you're going to do it. But three times a day for 10 minutes, you're going to turn the ideas from being something you dictated to your phone into something that's on your computer. And if you start doing that and you say, I'm going to do this for one week and get the kids to do it with you and say, what do you guys want to do for the next 10 minutes while I do this? And everybody knows that until that little bell dings, you're each going to do that thing, whatever it is. I like that. The other thing is that I found very helpful was literally drafting my daughters into you know, protecting mama's status as a writer. Um, when my first non-romance came out, Barnes Noble at that time had a window that they would put local authors in and I applied and they put my book in the window Yay. and my kids danced around me in a circle on Broadway going, mama is a famous girl. Mama is a famous girl. <laughs> I did That's not disillusion fabulous. them to the extent that mama was a famous girl. And my younger daughter would go into bookstores and say, do you have my mother's books? Yeah. I would never do this. And she, well, why don't you? You know, that girl's going to be your publicist one day. Yeah, really? Your two older kids are old enough so that they can go off and play in traffic for 10 minutes or even 15. The younger one- They don't might... fight with each other, yes. Right. Well, so you tell them, look, this is how you help dad be a writer, is you don't fight with each other for 15 minutes. And you can say, you can bring me any argument you want in 10 minutes, but there's a beautiful thing. And I learned this when I lived with a little girl who was four years old and her older sibling who was, I want to say, 10 or 11 years old that they would argue with their mom 
and they would argue with me and wheedle about, oh, just more time. But it was impossible to argue with the little bell that went off and goes ding, 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 ding. Oh, well, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. That's that's the bell. And they've already experienced school-like conditions and they understand this is structured time, which they put a bell at the end of every hour. You're just doing a shorter one. That is an idea. I mean, and that my older kids are twins. And when they were babies, I did learn how to write in five minute segments and 10 minute segments, just to keep my sanity. You know, <laughs> I had to do some writing. Well, there you go. When, you, but, when we hang off and you start you, your next cup of coffee, tell the kids you're going to take 10 minutes and try this thing. Sure. Yeah. And that, and I was going to say, that's very successful for some kinds of writing tests. And it that, is, but the whole point awesome. about it is it builds for you the habit of doing it, and it builds for your kids the expectation that it's going to happen. There's that. There's definitely that. Because right now, most of the writing I've done during this period has been when the kids are asleep. Right. But, you know, nine times out of ten, the kids are asleep, my, my wife conks out, and I'm the only one up. And I'm like, oh, great, now I can write. And I'm to my brain. I sit down. I even, I even sit down, turn on my laptop, open the Scrivener file with my work in progress, and stare at it and go, I am too tired to think. That's, you know. Um, because, I, I hear you. And we are all, all we'll do that. We, we are all steeped in, in the ennui of the zeitgeist, as it were. But yeah, I mean, but also, it's also just people. Parenting is a creative thing. Yeah. Right. It's like, you know, I used to do my first job in computing. Everyone had to take a ship. I was on on campus at the University of Chicago as a staff computing person. And everyone was required to take one shift a week to, to help staff the helpline for students, professors and staff people called with whatever computer problems. And so it was limited in time. But Basically, you never knew what the job was going to be. You walk in and like, maybe nobody calls. Maybe somebody calls and it's like, unplug it, replug it, you know, <laughs> turn it on again, reboot it. Uh, but maybe someone has a really complicated problem that's going to require you to go to someone else. You don't know, right? And that's like, parenting is like that, only it's all the time when you're with kids, right? And so it's a very creative, thoughtful thing, to deal with, especially uh, multiple children. So much respect for teachers. Oh my God. One of the problems is it drains your creativity because you're using it all day. And yeah. that's my question of how can you help your kids get them to help dad? Maybe you need to sit and do a block party with your kids and say, all right, daddy's writing a story and he's got nothing here. What do you think the next story should be about? And give them a seed from your dream and and let the little imagination machines do a little work for you and then say, okay, at the end of it, I'm going to need 10 minutes to write down all the things that we talked about. Yeah. Um, my latest story features two characters that are, that are named by my children. One of them is Barney and the other is Jimmy. Um, they named James and I thought it would be better Jimmy, but I'm like, okay, kids, I need a name for X. And one of them would give me the name. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, that was kind of fun. Uh, so I could see definitely, you know, brainstorming with one's kids, um, all kids, you know, until it is beaten out of them by whatever school system or society or life, hard knocks, whatever happens to them are naturally cre super creative engines. Right? I, I think everybody's a storyteller. They've just 
never really looked at it that way, or many haven't. So, yeah. I, yeah, I read one artist who said that. Well, you know, the reason that most people don't do professional quality art, you know, their art doesn't look bad or you know, quote untalented. Um, it looks like the art of whatever age they stop doing art, right? Yep. So if you stop doing art at age ten, you will always draw things that look like a ten-year-old drawing. Right. And so it's possible to just keep going. Right. And so the same is true with anything, writing, music, whatever. Um, you dance, um, martial arts, you will you will wind up being whatever, quote, age it is you stopped. That's how good you will be at whatever it is. It's a skill that requires time. Right? Then it sounds like you've you've talked your way into saying that the honest way is if you want your kids to be writers, you need to all sit down and do your writing time together then. Oh, dude, my novel features all sorts of complicated things. It features, you know, coming of age. It features the clash of civilizations. It, it features social awareness and justice and giant space bugs. And, you know, I told my kids as I was working on it, what they were, what I was doing, at least the older ones, because the younger one, very, very young. Um, and the twins each wrote a story involving giant bugs and illustrated it. And then they read them to me. We had a recital. It was awesome. I think you've already outlined your own tools for succeeding in this one there, Cliff. Yeah. We believe in you. We super believe in you. But we will also put links to both the books that Cliff mentioned and the other stuff we mentioned on our website, which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter. All three of us here, Cliff and Mads, everybody loves email. So if you want to email us a question or et cetera, we are happy to answer back. Right, guys? Absolutely. Cool. Thank you so much for doing this with me tonight. I'm, I hope it helped you guys as much as it helped me. Oh, good. It was lovely. Thank you. It was fantastic. Thank you for having Always. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on minihatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor today is Jackal Designs, allowing you all to buy cool WDC swag, and The Bean Scene, which is my favorite coffee shop in Sunnyvale, and we miss you. And hey, thanks for listening. <laughs>